Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this Tuesday. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Eleveld. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos's the Brief, our weekly show about politics. Uh, we have a great guest today. I'm so excited. We have Ense Ufat. Maybe you haven't heard of her, but you know about her work. Her organization, New Georgia Project, is one of the major reasons, if not the reason, that Georgia turned blue, not just at the presidential level, but also gave us two new Democratic senators and control of the Senate. So we will be talking to Ense about the work her organization did and what lessons we might be able to learn as we try to turn other states blue. I'm looking at South Carolina, Texas, and believe it or not, Mississippi. So you're I'm obsessed excited. with Mississippi. You so can't wait to get. <laughs> so you can't wait to get Mississippi. It feels oh. off. it feels far off, but I don't know. It's it's it, we'll be talking about it, Carrie. But by 2030, 46 to 48 percent of the state is expected to be non-white. Those are unbelievable numbers. And of course, just like Georgia used to be, we have a huge percentage of core Democratic constituency voters who are not voting, who are, have found no reason to vote, have, right. haven't been engaged. So there's a lot of work to be done. And just like Georgia, it wasn't an overnight. And that's one thing I really want to get you know, into with Ense is, is just how much work it took to flip Georgia. This is not the sort of thing that like, oh, you know. People voted randomly and it's exciting. You know, we just won Georgia. It took a lot of work and that's what we're going to need to do in places like South Carolina and Mississippi. And it's already happening in Texas. It's already happening in Texas. So that's sort of it's moving in our direction. So right. I'm excited to really talk about those issues. I think it's uh, incredibly important for all the obvious reasons. So, uh, Carrie, we're going to have and say for most of the show, it's going to be a, a one guest show because it's, this is that how important. Here's the deal. If you're if you're a progressive activist out there wanting to figure out how you can turn your state blue or you can help another state turn blue and say is your woman like she's the person you want to listen to. So anyway, just a plug. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, but before she comes on, uh, Carrie, there, there's sort of a. It's not big news in a traditional sense of the way where we have cabinet secretaries being uh, confirmed and all these executive orders. And that's all really exciting that we wake up and we see good news. <laughs> it's so weird, right? Good news when we wake up. But there's, there's sort of a conceptual shift in the Democratic Party and in Joe Biden that I think is really important. And I know you've been writing about it, Kerry. And that's the notion that bipartisanship and unity doesn't mean Mitch McConnell and his Republican caucus. It means the American people. And this is something that I think was a fundamental problem and maybe the fatal flaw of the Obama presidency is that he was so obsessed with trying to get Republican votes in Congress as opposed to winning with Republican support amongst the broader electorate. Right. So, um, Carrie, you've been talking about this, right? It's it's actually a pretty important shift, right? 
Oh, it's a super important shift. I mean, I think, look, and it wasn't just Obama, right? This is this is the sort of a centrist mindset that has hung over the Democratic Party ever since, you know, the 90s, ever since Bill Clinton sort of fashioned it. And, you know, it, it moved into the Obama White House because you had Rahm Emanuel as chief of staff. And he was, you know, central to some of those battles in the in the Clinton era around health care, around gay rights and, and the military gay ban. You know, I mean, these were, there were several different things, but I think what is just most noticeable and it's partly, you know, an evolution of the times, right. An evolution of the issues, but it's also just watching Joe Biden go forward really unapologetically on progressive issues. All those issues that you that we saw Obama sort of stumble over in the first handful of years in in his presidency at different times, right? On on LGBTQ issues, on immigration, on climate change, right? He just Biden just dispensed with those, right? If you just think about it like there was this immediate really aggressive executive order Biden issued on uh, making sure that Title VII would cover gay and transgender workers. I mean, not only gay and transgender Americans, not only in the workplace, but also in housing, you know, and And other places. Title VII is an anti-discrimination law that historically has only been applied on basis of race and gender. and. And the Supreme Court only uh, this is under sex discrimination, right? This is how people on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation have now been found to be protected under the sex sex discrimination clause in uh, Mm -hmm. Title seven. And and but it was and that was a new uh, finding last year by the Supreme Court. But this executive order by Biden just went further and said it should protect them across the board, not just in employment. Right. So that was one thing. But then also immediately he reversed Trump on the Keystone XL pipeline, which had been which was a years long battle for climate change change activists during the Obama administration. And then, you know, he fortified DACA right away for dreamers, the protections for dreamers, and also, you know, put forward this really bold immigration bill that included a pathway to citizenship as sort of a no brainer, expanded card access, et cetera. Also reversed the ban on transgendered Americans in the military. And yeah. the, the response has been from Republicans has been, oh, well, I thought Biden was going to be all about unity. Right. As though the idea of unity is doing what Donald Trump did, which, by the way, he did not win re-election and neither did the Senate, despite the massive institutional advantages that Republicans have in the Senate. Right. So it's a really weird definition of, of, of unity. And old presidencies like Obama and Clinton would have said, you know, would have been kind of obsessed with, oh, we got to get bipartisan Republican support and everything. And then Republicans know this and just drag stuff out, right? And, and just right. obstruct. And Biden right away said, nope, that's not what I mean by unity. What I mean by unity is the American people. And if you look at these issues, right. every single one of them is actually incredibly popular, even <laughs> gaining significant Republican support, not Republicans right. in Congress, Republican right. voters. 
And progressives have been saying this for years, that action on immigration reform, action on, uh, you know, protecting dreamers, action on uh, LGBTQ rights issues, action on climate change is all been broadly popular with, you know, polling at depending on the issue, anywhere from 60 to 70 to 80 percent. Right. And so why haven't Democrats done it? Well, they've been, you know, sort of beholden to this old mindset, but also, you know, Republicans kind of screaming about bipartisan and oh, you got to get our votes and, you know, whatever. And, you know, Biden is saying, no, you know, elections have consequences. These are the things I ran on. This is what I'm doing. And I don't necessarily need he, he literally said yesterday, and this jives with what he said in his inaugural address, right, which is if you get a bill passed on party on a party line vote, if it only gets Democratic votes, it doesn't mean it was there wasn't unity. It just means there there wasn't bipartisanship. And he's talking about unifying the American electorate. And that's really important because he's not just talking about unifying them on, you know, some policy votes. He's talking about unifying them against the things that he mentioned in the inaugural address, things like white supremacy, things like extremism, things like uh, racial injustices, things like disinformation and lies that have spread rampantly under uh, Donald Trump. And he said, he said in his inaugural address, at these critical moments in our history, whether they be the Civil War or the Great Depression, enough of us have come together, quote unquote, enough of us have come together to carry all of us forward. So, you know, that's his definition of unity. It's not a few token GOP votes. No. And uh, right before we get to um, our guest today, I just want to point out that Joe Biden's favorability or job approval ratings today are higher than they ever were during the entire four years of Trump's presidency. So already, clearly, Joe Biden is a more unifying force than, than Trump did. And of course, Trump never even bothered trying. So maybe the bar was low, but it's really heartening to see that there is res- people are responding to it in a positive way. So, Carrie, our first guest, actually our, our guest today. Yeah, our is, only guest, our one our only, and only guest today is Ense Ufat. She is the CEO of New Georgia Project. Ense, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Hello, Marcos. Hello, Carrie. Such a pleasure to have you. So let me let me lay some some background so people sort of understand sort of the magnitude of the accomplishment that you and all your fellow activists in Georgia uh, accomplished. So in 2016, Donald Trump won Georgia by five percentage points, a big victory, but a pretty solid one in the four years after, he added 360,000 new votes to his total. So he had already won by 5%, added 360,000 new votes, which I think is something like 18% increase, which something like that, which is huge, right? In any rash, if I was going to look at that number, you know, a year before the election, I would have looked at that and said, yeah, well, whew, that's not, we're not going to get Georgia this year. We'll have to keep building for the future. But Of course, we know that that didn't happen, that Georgia Democrats added 600,000 new votes, 30 some percent increase. And not only was that a narrow victory for Joe Biden, but then a couple of months later in the in the Senate runoffs, an even bigger victory. So that margin kept getting bigger for both Senate uh, races. So first of all, congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Second of all, thank you. 
Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember 10 years ago, actually after the after Obama 2012, I remember looking at Georgia and going like, well, Georgia, this is interesting. This is this is a state to watch. And somebody said, and I'm almost sure it was Stacey Abrams. I'm almost sure that there were 700,000 unregistered African-Americans in Metro Atlanta alone. So something happened in between 2022 and 20, I'm sorry, 2012 and 2020. Can you talk about what happened to so dramatically change the face of Georgia politics? Yeah. So I, uh, was introduced to a phenomenal leader and organizer named Stacey Abrams. Um, and so I'm, so there's one thing to sort of know that you're right, <laughs> right? Um, it's one thing to sort of have a vision, have a theory of change. And there's, it's a completely different thing to like have it be borne out um, and have sort of external validators. And so short story, in 2013, um, Leader Abrams at the time, um, Stacey Abrams, minority leader of the Georgia State uh, Legislature. So she was the leader of the Democratic Caucus or the Minority Caucus, yeah, Democratic Caucus. She uh, launched an organization called the New Georgia Project. And in 2013, the original ambition was to register rural Black Georgians, people who had, you know, been working 20, 30, 40 years and never had health insurance, to register them for the Affordable Care Act. Uh, to register for health insurance on the exchange. But here's the thing. I think that, you know, the kind of leader, the kind of organizer Stacey is, certainly the kind that I am, we can never lie to the people. And so having real conversations with working people on the doors about the quality of the plans that they're able to get, because the Georgia Republicans have left billions of dollars on the table by refusing to expand Medicaid. Um, by refusing to participate in the exchange. And so, you know, $800 a month for awful health insurance that doesn't cover anything is not attractive to a person that's been working 20, 30, 40 years without health insurance, right? Uh, people, I, I will take my chances, right? With a uh, ginger root and some cocktail uh, that my people <laughs> have told me, you know, cures cancer or whatever. CMOS, I think, is the new thing. So I think after, you know, knocking on doors, registering people for the Affordable Care Act, I think that there was a clarity that what needed to actually happen was that we needed to have elected officials in Georgia who were accountable to Georgia families and Georgia communities, and that none of that was ever going to happen um, if we didn't change the composition of the legislature, and none of that was ever going to happen unless we registered a whole bunch of people to vote. Um, so when we launched the voter registration element, when I took took over, became the CEO of the New Georgia Project in 2014, stopped focusing on one individual policy issue, which was healthcare at the time, and started focusing on what we believe is the foundation to all of this, which is democratic participation, combating voter suppression, registering people to vote. At the time, there were about 1.2 million Black and Brown Georgians, um, people of color, who were eligible to vote in Georgia's elections, but who were not Registered. 1.2 million. 1.2 so million. 1.2 million. million. Yeah. And, and so Obama lost the state by 200,000 in 2012. Yeah. Yes. Well, but not so I love that you know that. And let me add some more. Like we're gonna do some Georgia trivia today. So oh <laughs> that two hundred thousand vote margin had actually been had persisted for nearly a decade. 
right? So oh, yeah. uh, we're so Obama in 2008 was about 250,000, 300,000 votes. Uh, in 12 was about 200,000 votes. Um, Jason Carter, the grandson of Jimmy Carter, who a uh, former candidate for governor, about 250,000 votes. Senator David Perdue, who just uh, was retired against his will, was uh, elected in 2014 by a margin of 200,000 votes. So between 200 and 300,000 had been the margin by which Republicans have been winning in Georgia for near, for over a decade. That's amazing. I mean, that means Democrats could were basically knocking on the door for all this time. That's that's you know, I mean, that means it was gettable for all that time. That's right. unreal. Right. And, you know, they say it, it's just success looks like hard work. That's why a lot of people don't recognize it. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, Stacey had the vision. And so she, we met New Year's Day brunch in 2014. It is a favorite pastime of us in Atlanta. Yeah. At the time, 1.2 million young people, people of color, um, people in our who are gettable not registered, meaning they're not on Vote Builder, they're not on anybody's van, they're not on anyone's list, they don't have vote history, you know, we don't have updated addresses for them, so they needed to be brought into the system. Um, And so we got to work. Uh, To date, New Georgia Project has registered over half a million uh, young people and people of color and unmarried women and femmes uh, to vote alone. Um, I think you add another 300,000 from other organizations who are in our ecosystem and now we have a ball game. Wow. Um, well, yeah. So you, you, I'm actually curious about this meeting that you had with Stacey Abrams that where you first got the job, because on, before that, according to your bio, you were the uh, vice director of a union of Canadian faculty members and nothing against Canada, nothing against faculty members. I'm sure they're wonderful people, but you went from being sort of, you know, kind of second place in, you know, Canadian faculty to like saving our democracy. I mean, that is quite a dramatic (laughs) So how did that meeting happen and how did you get... So one of my dear friends, a woman who uh, has sort of seen me grow uh, as an operative, as a leader, as an organizer, we were baby Democrats together in Ohio when she was the deputy executive director of the Ohio Democratic Party. Her name is Lauren Grow-Wargo. Uh, and she is probably best known to people now as Stacey's campaign manager. But, but we've been friends for a very long time. And so I was living and working in Canada. I had gone in to what my friends jokingly refer to as organizer retirement. Because working for a union, a faculty union in Canada, um, I mean, let's be clear, bosses are still bosses, workers are still workers. And so there was still much work to be done. But there's a difference when you are negotiating labor agreements across the table from people who think that you fundamentally have a right to exist. And so the context is completely different. And so my friends and union organizer friends all told me that I had gone into organizer retirement when I moved to Canada. And so um, I get a call one day from Lauren. It was like, uh, hey, are you coming home for Christmas? Are you coming home for the holidays? Uh, Yeah. Have you met my mother? Of course I am. (laughs) Uh, And she says, I'd like for you to meet the state legislator, the state rep. Her name is Stacey Abrams. And I was such a jerk. I was, "Uh, I I got, it's my family. You know, I'm just, I'm going to keep it, I'm going to keep a low profile. You know, I'm not really trying to make 
make new friends right now. And like, besides, like, a state, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I don't have time. And she was like, "No, you guys should really have brunch. She's incredible." And I was like, well, First of all, you buried the lead. <laughs> so, okay, of course I'll have brunch. And met with her, sat, she, you know, laid out her vision for NGP. And I was one, blown away, but also super skeptical because- Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, you know me, I'm, I'm turning over the, the facts, the figures, the plan. I'm going to tear it apart so that we can put it back together. And so- you know, when she laid out her vision, it was like, okay, this is great. But like, here are 30 reasons why it will never work, why they will never let it happen. And the beauty and the brilliance of Stacey was that she absolutely had 31 reasons why it absolutely could work, that it had to work, and that she thought that I was the right person uh, to come and help sort of carry the vision to life. So I go home to Canada. I pack up my things. Um, I get a call from Stacy or from Lauren a couple of weeks later that says, um, you know, how much do you make? <laughs> and I said, how much I made? And I was like, well, we can't pay you that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there's an opportunity to fundraise. I really believe in this. I really believe in this work. And like, I would like for you to join us. I packed my truck. I drove the 24 hours from Ottawa back home to Atlanta, which is where I grew up. Um, and started as the executive director of the New Georgia Project the next day. So a lot of us were talking about leaving the United States to go to Canada because of Donald Trump. You <laughs> actually did the reverse. I know, I know, I know. I listen. I hopefully. Uh, but you did it, wait, wait, wait! You did it though, just a little before he actually became president, it's right? True. It's true. I did it uh, at the end of the first Obama term. Yeah. Right. Okay. When things still felt semi-safe. I mean, you know, what if Stacey Abrams had come to you two years later? Well, when I think about this moment that we're in, it absolutely reminds me of 2009, 2010, death panels, like, you know, the Obama as a Nazi artwork that was proliferating, um, you know, just the awful, like the terrorist fist bump, right? Like just disinformation. I mean, I don't think that we had the language at that moment, but the impact that it's having on our elections, people's faith in our institutions and how it is like, one of the key threats that needs to be neutralized if we are to have a representative democracy that works for people and again that people have faith in um, it is often said that we are a nation of laws and like that's how things get held together if we are a nation of norms and for the past four years there's been a very visible person that has violated our norms and there have been a whole bunch of people in multiple levels of government that have excused that behavior or ignored it and so this day to this very day yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Literally in the Senate today, you know, with what of uh, 45, I think, GOP senators voting to not go ahead with. Um, I mean, this didn't affect the, the impeachment trial will still happen. But 45 Republicans going on the record saying uh, in the Senate that they they didn't want to move forward. They didn't think that Trump should be held accountable for what he did. You know, so that that is continuing. You know, let me let me just switch gears real quick. And this is a little abrupt, but, you know, whatever. I, I don't have all the social graces sometimes, but but we 
wanted to get into a little bit of the nitty gritty of the, the new Georgia project. And we wanted to talk like funding. You talked about fundraising. What's your budget? And, you know, our guess is, is that your budget is considerably less than, say, the hundreds of millions of dollars that is spent every, you know, cycle. Just the last, last month. month. Just the last right. month of the right. runoff Just election. the last month. So anyway, please let us know. What's your yeah. budget? What is so, it? Um, yeah. What I would say is that um, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this. I have a conversation yeah. because this is um, the dirty little secret of philanthropy, the dirty little secret of political organizations and, and political organizing. There's uh, we very much suffer from the boom and the bust mm-hmm. of um, like cyclical funding. Yeah. Um, and so I would say that in non-presidential years, non-gubernatorial years, our budget is around $3 million a year. Um, and in presidential years, it goes up to about five. Five. Uh, five. It's, still nothing. Right. it's still nothing. It's still dropping the bucket relative to all those ads that come in like um, a month before. It's crazy. $800 million spent in the runoff. In the runoff, like in the nine weeks. And, and for TV ads that probably didn't change it. I mean, we know almost assuredly didn't change a single vote. Not at all. Not at all. But Probably you know what did change? Whether like the number of summer houses that a lot of people <laughs> uh, are able to purchase. It did not move. I'm telling you, it did not move the needle um, at all. Needle. We knocked on two million doors. That we, moves the needle. Yeah, we knocked on two million in the middle of a pandemic after deep consultation with public health experts and with our staff and with our volunteers and with our board. Knocked on two million doors again in the runoffs in the nine weeks. Seven million phone calls, over four million text messages, and ads that put anything that was on television to shame. Do you have Do you have a dollar amount like? how much you needed to put in in order to get a, a, a voter registered. I mean, do you, is it, does it get down to that? T- I mean, that's kind yeah. of a, yeah. I, mean, I live with these numbers. They are my yeah. only friends. Uh, <laughs> and so I would say um, on average, uh, it costs us about $40 uh, to register a new voter. Yeah, yeah, and but and and I will explain why, um, because it's not just. You no, know, I think that's an unreal. That's an like amazing small amount of money to spend to register a voter. Personally, right? right. That feels. Sorry, when I right. said that's unreal, I just wanted to clarify. Anyway, go ahead, please. Well, sorry. I mean, people definitely treat us like we are. You know sending out gold-plated voter registration forms. Um, so it's about $40 to, per registration. Now getting to the vote um, is another number. Um, but, you know, in a place like Georgia, there is a long and a recent history of voter suppression in our state, right? So if just thinking about, you know, I'm super proud and you will probably get annoyed hearing me talk about what we were able to accomplish because of the infrastructure that we have built um, in the state. So what we were able to accomplish in the nine weeks uh, between the general and the January runoff. But in a day, like, yes, we knocked on two million doors. Yes, we made over seven million phone calls. Yes, we made over four million text messages. 
In addition to that, we were filing lawsuits because they cut the number of days that people got to vote early. They cut the number of early voting locations, like physical places where people went to go vote. They cut the number of drop boxes where people drop off their vote by mail ballots or absentee ballots. They tried to um, restrict the number of hours that people had access to the drop boxes, but they lost in court making the argument that, I mean, anyone who knows about drop boxes, the whole point, like the whole central conceit, the reason they exist is to be a convenience to customers. And so it's an after hours way to vote, et cetera. And they wanted to limit people's access to the drop boxes only during the times that the board of elections, the county board of elections was open. The secretary of state released a, a memo, some guidance a couple of days before the election saying that any group or individual that participated in line warming, right? So if you brought water to vote, in line and Georgia's notorious for our eight, nine, 10, 11 hour lines to vote. If you brought water or pizza or coffee to voters that we would be subject to criminal penalties uh, and go to jail, like criminally charged. And if convicted, go to jail um, and pay significant fines. Um, I think in Georgia, it carries with it a penalty of up to five years in prison. And so that is what we were threatened with days going into the January runoffs. And so, um, you know, having a robust legal team um, that not only will help us defend us, the organization and our work, but also to challenge these awful attempts to suppress the vote um, is a part of, so it's the comms, right? Like, because part of our work is changing the narrative. You guys think that you were surprised by us flipping Georgia in November. There are Georgians who are surprised oh, yeah. that we flipped the state, right? And then when they saw that the margin was 0.25%, Right. Uh, and it was like, wait, you mean out of five million votes cast, Georgia was decided by 11,000 votes. Right. And so the narrative work of letting people know that Georgia is a proper battleground state, that we are a legit swing state um, and that people are going to have to come and see your vote, um, that we talk about the multiracial, multi-ethnic, progressive majority that exists in Georgia. Um, and, you know, again, people don't believe it. Uh, like we can show, we can lay the numbers. Let me tell you, I have decks upon decks upon PowerPoint upon slides that show people what we're talking about. You don't need it anymore. Yeah, I was right. going to say, I, I think you just proved it. You know, right. I keep wondering, I keep wondering when Republicans are going to clue into the fact that at some point they're not going to be able to suppress enough votes to keep winning. And they might actually have to start trying to cater to voters in order to let, win them over. I mean, I don't know how many defeats it's going to take before that because they they are just they just keep on just keep right. on well i think part of it is that we you know have to act like we have a mandate uh and we have to act like we've won and then what does it mean? How do we, you know, build on top of those wins? Um, I think also just, again, another, since we're doing Georgia Trivia Day, Trump won 71% of white voters in Georgia. Uh, and so... I think that there's an important lesson there that a Republican can win 71 percent 
of all of Georgia's white voters and still lose, right? Oh, that it truly is a multiracial democracy. Yeah, that's a, that's um, a nice step. You know, let me, let me just say, let me, um, so let me just switch gears again. And because this is a, you know, this was such a hard fought over many years, over seven years win for you guys, right? Mm-hmm. And you're talking about how do we build on those successes? What do you think the people who were the organizers you worked with, along with the you know young people who voted for the first time, what do we need to do to keep them engaged? And what are the what are the voters that you went out and registered newly? What are they looking for from the Biden administration? DACA. Mm-hmm. They want their two thousand dollar checks. Mm-hmm. And like, if there's just a clarity in this moment, there's a sort of elegance to it uh, that because, I mean, really smart people will give you like all kinds of treatises about what this moment means and like what a progressive agenda entails and what. Where's my money? (laughs) Where's my money? Where's my money? Where's my money? We're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, the wealthiest people in this country have continued to make money. We are hemorrhaging jobs as a country, um, and there's no end in sight. 430,000 of us are no longer here. Um, where's my vaccine? Where's my money? Right? It's very elegant. It's very simple. Yeah, you know, Democrats, this is something that we've been complaining about for years, is they want to do, like, block grants and all these mean tested programs that, that are just overly com- complicated when it's just as simple as shower people with money. Right. I mean, there's a real policy argument to be made for it, but beyond that, it's the best political argument to be right. made for it. So kind of related then two years and we have uh, the midterm elections in Georgia. We're going to have uh, statewide elections. Um, Stacey Abrams presumably is going to run for governor. I don't think she ever stopped. Raphael Warnock has to run for re-election for a full term because he won in a special election. And then, of course, we have the Secretary of State's office, which somehow <laughs> wasn't a disaster this year or this year, but could have been. And I really don't want to tempt fate anymore. And he's already talking about restricting voting access already. Right. So that's an important it. Like the white flash that we are living through in this yeah. moment um, is severe. What are your goals for these next two years uh, in preparation for uh, what, what's the task ahead of you when you have all those PowerPoint presentations, what are you looking at now? Um, we are going to have to aggressively beat back this uh, voter suppression agenda. Like, I mean it, the priority, whatever, I have no idea what was at the top of their um, list of legislative priorities when the Republicans had their retreat planning for this session, but it has been completely erased and replaced by a voter suppression agenda. Um, so they have vowed to get rid of vote by mail. Like it's going to be a fight uh, that we are in the middle of right now that while, you know, it's super clear that the rest of the country has moved on from what I still feel like was an extraordinary moment for America's sort of multi 
multiracial democracy and gave us a glimpse into what we could be as a country um, that, that back home we are facing severe backlash as a result of that and it's going to be a problem one two um, not the sexiest topic in the world but like redistricting and gerrymandering I don't want to fight these fights for the next 10 years I think that this is going to be the first census I mean granted the previous administration did everything that they can they could to break the census but um, you know this will it'll be confirmed this is the first time that the majority of Americans under the age of 18 are people of color. By the time we have the next census, the majority of Americans under 30 uh, will be people of color. Um, and so what does that mean? Um, uh, nearly 2 million people have moved to Georgia in the past decade, uh, a very uh, ethnically diverse cohort of people. Um, and so I think that we are entitled to one, if not two additional congressional seats, uh, which means two additional electoral votes. I think that, you know, the minimum wage in Georgia is still $5.15 an hour, um, below the federal minimum wage of $7.25. Yeah, we still haven't, don't have Medicaid expansion. Listen, there was a hospital that closed a week before the November general election. And hospitals are such key institutions in our communities, particularly in rural parts of the state. Uh, so down in Randolph County, which has an interesting and fascinating, unique history, you know, a week before the election, uh, the hospital closed. Not only do they tend to be the largest employers in a lot of communities, but, you know, COVID, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and people are still having babies and people are still fighting cancer, right? And like all of these things, they're super important institutions and about a dozen of them have closed or are slated to close in rural parts of the state because of our failure to expand Medicaid. There are real wins uh, that we want to win for the people of Georgia um, and for Georgia families and for working families. And that's what our priority is over the next 18 months, two years. How can I have I bet I, I kind of think I know the answer to this question, but maybe I don't, which is how how can people best support the work you're doing? Like what you know, is it just monetary or, you know, I mean, I'm talking about kind of people from out of state. Right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, I'm a Southerner. I'm a Southern girl. Uh, and we do a lot of work with communities of faith churches, synagogues, mosques. Uh, we have a network of about 1,100 churches, synagogues, and mosques that we work with that help us uh, register half a million young people and people of color. Um, and so in the Black church, they say, we would love your time, your talent or your treasure. <laughs> so, um, I mean, obviously, if people are able to donate, newgeorgiaproject.org forward slash donate, we would love that. Super grateful for that. Um, and in your talent, uh, listen, we are a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-generational organization. And so we always need subject matter experts. You're your graphic designer. Um, someone donated art to us the other day. Um, uh, we have a photographer that uh, agreed to take, you know, pictures of us canvassing because, you know, we need to do a better job of telling our story. If someone, if someone has talent to donate, who do they email? Who do they email at your organization? So there's a couple things. It depends on what the talent is. Uh, so I feel like emailing Kendra at newgeorgiaproject.org 
org um, is the best way to sort of get plugged in to what we have going um, at the organization. There's also a volunteer uh, at newgeorgiaproject.org, which is manned by our lovely, amazing volunteer coordinator, Brittany Bengert. There's also, um, and then, you know, time. Uh, we'll take it all. I, I remember um, uh, in the 72 hours after Georgia was called um, for Biden and we knew that there was going to be a runoff for Ossoff and Warnock, uh, we received 10,000 requests to volunteer uh, with the organization. And I'm, and that was just within the weekend, like the 72 hours after we were called. Um, and we didn't tell a single person, no, uh, that we went off. All is said and done. We're still pulling that. But all, when all is said and done, we probably um, staffed, like fielded over 100,000 volunteer shifts in the nine weeks uh, between the November general and the January. So we have the infrastructure, which is what we've been building for the better part of this decade to meet this particular moment. Um, and that honestly is what I am most proud of that we were able to sort of execute on and build upon Stacey's vision for having a large, effective, independent political and organizing home for Georgia's multiracial, multi-ethnic progressive majority. So I want to do a big uh, a, a um, pitch to everybody listening to become sustaining monthly members to organizations like the New Georgia Project. The ability to have sort of that steady stream, one, it's, it's a lower lift on you after giving maybe $10 a month, but it actually creates a sort of sustainable revenue stream that these organizations can plan around. So I really, 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 if you can afford it, if you can manage it, um, consider doing a sustainable monthly donation to New Georgia Project, other organizations that you care about. And we still have a little bit of time. So I, I, I want to, again, <laughs> I know you're so focused on Georgia and, and I'm not going to hold it against you if you haven't thought about other states, but Carrie made fun of me earlier because oh, no, I, I listen, I'm here with you. I'm, I'm, bullish on Mississippi as well. Okay. <laughs> I'm super here. I uh, listen, I've done I've run the math, I've done the numbers. We have great uh, relationships with basically our counterpart. There's an organization in Mississippi called Mississippi Votes. Uh, there's a young woman named Erica Bennett who runs it like I'm with you. We Okay, anyway. Sorry, you have so a so, yeah, well, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be that. And just for the just because it's kind of funny, the Donald Trump won Mississippi by 200,000 votes. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, now it's a smaller state. So as a percentage, it's a bigger it's a bigger spread, uh, even to be fair. But by 2030, it's expected that 46 to 48 percent of the state will be people of color. Now, you think, you know, you're saying 68% of Georgia whites voted Republican in Mississippi it was 90%, right, vote Republican. It's, it's, it's a whole different world. And partly it's because it lacks a big metro area like, like Atlanta and suburbs with that highly educated, college educated white voter that is shifting so strongly in the, in the direction of the Democrats recently. I mean, um, that's not what we saw. That's not All right, what we tell saw. me, tell me. 
Oh, really? I was gonna say, uh, that uh, college-educated white voters stayed home uh, and voted for Republican candidates all the way up and down the ticket. So, like that, Trump still won, uh, and Republicans still won. Uh, college-educated white voters uh, that the um, and white women uh, that their vote share for Trump increased over the 2016 numbers. That more he enjoyed more support than specifically in Georgia. Yes. Yeah. That, that's um, well. Also, nationally, it went from like fifty-three yeah. to fifty-five percent, but specifically in Georgia as well. Yeah. So, looking at, at still, Mississippi lacks that big metro area, and uh, so it, it's a it's a different dynamic. But again, it it, it so, sort of does have a lot of those same dynamics, right? A a large <laughs> number of core Democratic constituencies, predominantly younger, because mm-hmm. the Black and Brown communities and Asian communities are all younger. And so less likely to vote because of socioeconomic reasons, less likely to vote just because young people are fixated on other things other than voting. Oh, and they're new to the system. Like there's an archaic yeah. team process that we don't do a good job of bringing people in aggressively. And that they're, unless there's a third party group like ours or like it's a part of the cultural zeitgeist, like you can't passively expect people who've never voted before to understand the importance of participating in the system. And particularly like one of the, one of the things that struck me uh, earlier that you mentioned is, is, the idea that, oh, we actually can make a difference. And if you're in Mississippi, and Mississippi is about as racist a state as you can get still. I mean, they just finally got rid of their Confederate battle flag uh, on, their, on their state flag last year. So, um, I, I mean, if Georgia was bad, I can't imagine Mississippi. Uh, it's got to be worse, right? So how, do you, how did you break through in Georgia in a way that now could be a, a model for not just even Mississippi, but South Carolina as well, and certain communities in Texas. Yeah, um, that is literally the work that we're doing right now to sort of understand what the path to victory. We don't believe in a cookie cutter approach to anything. Um, so there definitely isn't a one size fits all uh, sort of plan to flip Mississippi. But I think that understanding what the path to victory uh, looks like is the work that's happening right now. And so, A, I think that... Um, there is a margin of young white voters uh, that can be organized and sort of persuaded they, that are swingable um, and get them to vote for Democratic or progressive candidates. And I, then there's a whole bunch of unregistered but eligible African-Americans and Latinos um, and a smaller population, but Asian-Americans in Mississippi as well. Um, and it may take a couple of cycles, but, you know, I think that there's a reason why people thought that Mike Espy um, had a shot, right? It wasn't just, you know. And Mike Espy was running for Senate in, oh, in Mississippi. Yeah, yes. yeah. So Mike Espy was running for Senate in Mississippi. And I mean, you know, smart people and people who've been paying attention could have easily dismissed his chances as like just another loser Democrat uh, in Mississippi trying to win. But there were people believed, um, I think the same way that folks believed that Texas was close, right? And so there is a path to victory. There's a margin to victory um, that is that exists for South Carolina. It exists for North Carolina. And 
yeah, I, I'm, I'm very excited. And I think that, again, it is looking at voter suppression because here's the thing. Um, people try, they gaslit us like over and over and over again, right? Until the, we launched our large scale voter registration effort in 2014. Let me tell you, in 2014, we registered 86,419 young people and people of color all over the state of Georgia. And by the voter registration deadline, in October of 2014, only 46,000 of the 86,000 that we had registered showed up on the voter rolls. And we mm. went to the Secretary of State and said, hey, where are those missing 40,000 voters? They responded with a subpoena of our donor records. They wanted all of our files. Uh, they wanted us to turn over everything. Um, and so we went to court. Um, and, you know, ultimately we lost in court because there was no law in Georgia that requires a county or the state to add you to the voter rolls in a particular time. So you know how many people are voting? 40,000. So the voter registration deadline is October, 30 days before the November midterm elections. I Both, thought they hadn't voted. You're saying they weren't even allowed to vote. Yeah. They weren't even allowed to vote. That they showed up to vote in November, oh. 30 days later, and were told that they weren't on the voter rolls. Mm -hmm. Wow. That most of them, about 30,000 of them, showed up on the voter rolls three, six, nine months after Later. the November 2014 midterms, the election that we registered them for. Some of them showed up like almost, again, a full nine months after we had registered them to vote. They finally got added to the voter rolls. Um, and so like these are some of the things. And so we have been working to expose a lot of the deficiencies in Georgia's elections infrastructure. So there are a bunch of different ways that you carve out a thousand black voters here, 5,000, 18 year olds there. And that adds up across the state. So I don't know what the nitty gritty of what is preventing Mrs. Mississippi from reaching its full political potential, but I'm excited to find out because we had to get neck deep into what was happening on the county by county level uh, before we saw the full picture of all of the ways in which our, our democracy was being attacked and black voters were, black votes were being suppressed for years in oh. Georgia. Yeah, and you know that's happening in Mississippi. Carrie, we have a we have marching orders for a, for a future guest. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, can I just ask one quick question and you may have answered this, but if you were, you know, if you were going to drop some money on creating or an organization like yours or if the organization already exists, just do it. But if you were going to try to recreate what you did in Georgia in say three other states, which ones do you think provide the best opportunity with a similar demographic and and, you know, to, to the best of your knowledge, similar circumstances. Well, Arizona is already there. So I feel like Arizona is our brown Southwest cousin. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so Arizona is the brown Georgia or Georgia is the black Arizona, depending <laughs> on who you're talking about. <laughs> Listen, I have a Mississippi matters to me, dude. <laughs> like it really oh, does. Okay. Carrie was making fun of me for talking about <laughs> no, Mississippi. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't. Well, I was. I was making fun, but not because. Not because I think you're off on a lark and have no idea what you're talking about, but just because like Mississippi on the brain, you know, Seems for Marcos, fantastical. Yeah. yeah, it's work, though. I mean, listen, let's be clear. I mean, I am 
so thrilled to be with you here. I'm huge fans of your work. Very grateful for the interventions that you have made on behalf of progressives, like in terms of like the dominant, like changing narratives, creating space, digital organizing, like all of that. And let's be clear, people were not high on Georgia. I was, um, I was, <laughs> I mean, so I think that that can change. I think that the Carolinas provide um, a decent opportunities. I'm very excited about that. Again, I think a lot of it is infrastructure. We so we launched the pack this year. It's called New South Super Pack, and they're you know the 623 counties that make up America's Black Belt, right? That go from East to Texas, all the way across the Deep South up to Northern Virginia. There's so many opportunities there. So I think that, I mean, North Carolina is super swingy. Again, I think it's, 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 it's infrastructure, it's investment, it's, you know, neutralizing and combating voter suppression. Alabama and Louisiana are also interesting to me uh, for a lot of reasons. I think that we've been able to build deep relationships with um, similarly situated organizations in Louisiana around our work to restore the right to vote for formerly incarcerated folks. Um, and so, again, it, it's not... There's not a cookie cutter solution. There's not a one size fits all solution. And there, while America and several states have long and recent histories of voter suppression, it's not the same. How the votes get suppressed are not the same. Um, you know, if it's at a county level, if it's on the state level, it's just there's a lot. So. Um, I would say that the, the opportunities abound in what is known as America's black belt. Mm -hmm. I'd say I'm so sorry to say that we're out of time. <laughs> I think we could keep now. I want to know about this new new South <laughs> Pack because uh, that that actually is new for me. So now I'm curious about that. I'm going to go look that up. But yeah. thank you so very much for talking with us. I really appreciate your time, especially you gave us extra time. So really yeah. appreciative of that. And I love it. I'm you. so glad. So happy to be here. Like you all are wonderful and warm and funny and smart. Uh, and this was great. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you for all much. the work you've done. Yeah. Oh, my God. I really, 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 really recommend to people, if you can, consider donating to New Georgia PAC and do so on a sustainable monthly basis uh, to all your favorite organizations that are doing great pro uh, progressive work. Um, one donation is great if you do it a sustaining, even if it's a smaller amount, $10 a month. I mean, this, this stuff really, really makes a difference. And it is the best bang for your buck, bar none. I mean, $5 million budget. Are you freaking kidding me well and and well and think about it this for a small dollar donor right if 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 it if what they i mean this isn't going to be this efficiency won't necessarily carry over to every organization that you donate to but given the infrastructure they have if you donate forty dollars you're registering someone to vote i mean like that's a new, you know, every time you donate for because she said it took them $40 to register for a new registration. So you're registering a new voter every time you give $40. I don't know. I feel like that's, that's no, better than the money you're giving to, you know, some pack or some organization to do, you know, a bunch of advertising. Yeah. One of my favorite stats, political stats about the 2020 election cycle is that Donald Trump outspent Joe Biden in one state only, in one battleground state, Joe Biden just blew away Donald Trump, wasn't even close, except for one state, and that one state was Georgia. Just shows you that it didn't really matter in Florida, it didn't matter in North Carolina, it didn't really matter anywhere, Ohio, Iowa, 
all places where Biden dramatically outspent Trump. Trump actually outspent Biden in Georgia. Again, those TV ads, nobody's mind's being changed. Nobody's paying attention to them. Heck, half people aren't even watching ads anymore. I don't even know what they're advertising. Uh, I'm a streaming person, so I don't see any political ads, period. And so to think of these hundreds of millions of dollars being plowed into these ads, when you have an organization like New Georgia Project that registered half a million people, and we didn't get a chance to ask her, unfortunately, but what I read is that there's at least another 200,000 uh, eligible voters in Texas that still haven't been registered to vote. So their work in registering voters isn't finished. And you talk about um, this being a 50-50 state now, Biden won by 11,000. I think Ossoff won by, what, 40,000, 30, 35, 40,000. Warnock won by 80,000. Add another 200,000 core Democratic voters, we're not even it's I mean, it might still be purple ish, but now we're talking a kind of state like like a Nevada, right, which is is purple blue. And it's it's it becomes a Democratic state absent some kind of Republican wave. Right. Things can happen, of course. But but, similar thing and similar thing in Virginia. I mean, you know, it's it's it was purple two cycles ago and now it's blue. So you can support New Georgia Project and, and you know, it's not the only organization in Georgia doing that kind of vote, that kind of work. But there's organizations like this in Arizona and in, in Mississippi and South Carolina and North Carolina and Florida. These are the organizations that really we should be focused on funding. And I wish I was a billionaire because I wouldn't be given to the DSCC and, you know, great. They need their money, too. And they need to do what they need to do. But to me, these organizations that are actually on the ground talking to voters, registering them to vote, and then turning them out to vote, those are the real heroes of our democracy. And they are the ones that are shifting the direction of our country. And and what you know, she was talking about the boom bust cycle, right, of the campaign uh, cycle. So what I mean, what we really need is not just for people to pour money in, you know, three months ahead of a or two months or even a month ahead of a big you know, a big race, but to be sustaining members, right? To do what you're talking about with the $10 uh, a month or something like that so that they can budget it in. So they, they, they can budget out where they're going and, and, uh, and show some foresight in what they're trying to accomplish, which hires they need to make, et cetera. So, you know, I mean, so th- that's part of what we're talking about, too. It's not just swooping in, but being interested in these organizations over the course of several years to build them up um, to the point where they have the type of infrastructure that New, New Georgia d- Project does now. Because as you can see, it wasn't just registering voters. Then it was having to have a legal staff because you had to, you know, challenge the uh, voter suppression that's happening and, you know, any number of things. So and you had to have a community communication staff because the narrative was so dead set that Georgia was a Republican state. So anyway, this is all the time we have today. I highly encourage you new Georgia project.org. Give them some support. They're doing amazing work. Carrie, this was a, I'm, I'm always so motivated when we talk to these on, on the ground organizers, like they, they are so inspiring to me. Uh, I'm hope, I hope you as readers enjoyed it as well. You can join us every Tuesday at one Pacific, 4.30 Eastern, live on YouTube and Facebook. Also, now we are on all your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever. The podcast goes live on Wednesday. So this will be available on Wednesday. Thank you so very much. Thank you to Ente Ufat for joining us. Thank you to Walter Einenkel for producing the show. 
Everybody be safe, wear your masks, and uh, catch you guys next week. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. See you next week.